As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, folks. Dr. Tim Jordan here, and I'm back with a new podcast. Uh, the podcast is called Raising Daughters, and we, I do these every week, most weeks. And I come to you today with a heavy heart, as I'm sure many of you have heavy hearts as well, since we're still sort of in the midst of trying to make sense of the school shooting in Texas. And I read a, an article recently by one of my favorite authors, Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times, He had originally put out a piece uh, back in November of 2017 about gun violence and how to curb it, and he updated his article this week after the school shooting in Texas. And one of the pieces of data that he put in his article was just, just astounding. In a typical year, more preschool children are shot dead in America than police officers are. Let me say that again. In a typical year in the U.S., more preschoolers are shot dead than police officers. It's about 75 preschoolers a year. From guns. From guns. So, I don't want to inundate you with more information and data because I think all of us are weary um, from everything that we've been seeing and reading and watching the news and all that. I, I stopped watching it um, several days ago because it's just too much. But I wanted to offer you and share with you some, what I think are some inspiring stories to help you look at what's going on and what we need to do to protect our children. I think sometimes we lose in the midst of all the talking heads who are yammering about gun control and our right to bear arms and all that stuff. I think we neglect the most important aspect of this crisis, which is children. It's kids. And it's interesting, I think, after all the reading I've done, we know what to do. It's not a mystery. Other countries have taken measures against gun violence It's that have worked. Nicholas Kristof in his article talked about how we did a similar kind of thing with car deaths in the past 60 years. We don't ban cars because there are car accidents and people die in cars, but we do work hard to regulate them and limit access to them so we can reduce the death toll. And this has been um, incredibly successful. Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Christoph uh, has some data there that we reduced the death rate per 100 million miles driven to less than one-seventh of what it was in 1946. Because we enacted some safety measures like safety belts introduced in 1950, safety standards, There's a 55-mile-per-hour speed limit that was introduced in 1974. 
we started requiring child safety seats starting in about 1978. We introduced car safety ratings in 1993. We added airbags in cars in 1999. And then we also uh, put forth mandatory reporting of defects by car makers in the year 2000. All this stuff has helped tremendously in, in curbing deaths from car accidents. So we know we can do that. We don't have free carte blanche when we get into our car because we know there are things that we can do to help all of us be more safe. I know this is a complicated issue. I read a story one time uh, about a Stone Age hunter. He was, he was uh, tracking a set of paw prints through the grasslands and he eventually came upon the largest and most ferocious looking saber-toothed tiger he had ever seen. But the animal had been recently killed, and a really small man was standing beside it. The hunter was amazed. He said, did you kill that? And the little man said, yes. He said, how could a small guy like you put down such a huge beast like that? And, and the little man said, I killed it with my club. And the astonished hunter was like, I can't believe that. How big is your club? The man thought for a moment. He said, I guess there are about 30 of us. Getting a handle on gun violence in this country is a complex problem. And people say there are no easy solutions. And that, that's, there's a lot of truth to that. But on the other hand, maybe we're making it more complicated than need be. I read some statistics not that long ago about how people in our country are more lonely than they've ever been before. Uh, the insurance company, Cigna, uh, did some, some surveys and some studies um, and they found that loneliness and social isolation are rampant in the U.S. today. About half of Americans report sometimes are always feeling alone. Let me say that again. About half of Americans report sometimes are always feeling alone. In a, in a 2018 study of more than 20,000 U.S. adults, really more than half said that they have meaningful daily in-person social interactions. Only about half of us have daily, meaningful social interactions with other people. One reason for this isolation is that we're, there's a shrinking social contact with people that we don't know. It wasn't that long ago when if we were in line uh, at the, in a bus stop, at the airport, if we're in line at the bank, we would talk to people. We would talk to strangers because there wasn't anything else to do, right? Today, if you're standing in line at the bus stop or at the airport or at the bank, what are people doing? Their face is glued to their phone. That's just one example, but people are feeling more disconnected. And it has a huge effect on all of us in so many different ways. I, I, saw, I, I saw another story. It was about uh, some research done in British Columbia. And they took these people and they, and they told them to either buy coffee in a coffee shop and then leave or to buy their coffee and then engage in a short conversation with the cashier while they were waiting for the drink to be made. Those in that latter group who waited and talked to the cashier report a much greater sense of belonging in their community after these short encounters. encounters. Some other research from the University of Chicago found that those commuters who took the, the, the train and who took the opportunity to talk to other passengers while riding the train or the bus reported having a much more enjoyable ride to and from work. There's been lots of studies that have shown that a simple gesture 
such as a nod or a smile, can be enough to make someone feel a sense of social connection. I think that lack of social connections, that sense of isolation and loneliness, I think that's a piece of this pie and trying to explain why are these things happening. I just finished reading a book. It was really, really good. I encourage all of you to read it. It's called Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N. It's an awesome book with lots of studies showing that by nature, human beings are generous, kind people who like to connect. And sometimes the problem isn't uh, our nature being that we're sinful and that we're evil by nature. And if left to our own devices, we would, we would do anything uh, you know, to get more money, etc. That's not really true if you look at the studies. And there's a wonderful story, which I'm sure you've heard before, but I'm going to repeat anyway. And this story happened during World War I at Christmas time. The front line in World War I stretched about 500 miles. And by Christmas in 1914, after about four years of war, more than a million soldiers had been killed from both sides. And on a, a field, a, a Flanders field, on Christmas Eve, British soldiers started hearing Germans across the line singing Christmas carols. Then they noticed some little lights twinkling, little Christmas lights. So the British were inspired, and they started singing carols. And before long, the Germans applauded the British singing. And then they started singing together across the lines. They, couldn't even, they weren't with each other. They were, you know, they were, there's a no man's land in between them, but they were singing the songs together. One of the soldiers heard someone call out for some tobacco. So this British soldier had the courage to walk into no man's land and meet the other soldier. And soon other soldiers followed. And on Christmas morning, the soldiers met in the middle of the field and they shook hands with the enemy. They exchanged gifts. They played soccer games. They held a joint burial service. That night, they had some Christmas feasts together. They exchanged, many of the men exchanged addresses and they promised to meet up after the war. The British were stunned by how nice the Germans were because all they knew about the Germans was from propaganda they had heard at home, that the Germans were these awful, nasty, mean, evil people. At least two-thirds of the British front line ceased fighting on that Christmas. More than 100,000 soldiers laid down their arms. And the only people who were resistant to this behavior were the leaders at the very top. They tried really hard to stop this quote-unquote plague of peace. The German army command issued orders that strictly prohibited fraternizing with the enemy. And the same was uh, happening with the British field marshal saying, that's, that's wrong, don't do that again, You're, you know, you'll, be, you'll be arrested, etc. If it was up to those soldiers in the trenches, the war would have stopped on Christmas Day forever. It was the higher-ups who were not in contact with each other who kept it going. Thousands of soldiers passed letters across the lines. Sometimes they even warned the other side about an attack coming the next day. Sometimes they would say, you know, our general is coming tomorrow, and so we have to act like we're fighting. And so they said, we're going to fire over your heads. This same kind of behavior between soldiers in the trenches had happened before, during the Spanish Civil War, the Crimean War, and the Napoleonic Wars. 
Now, I think part of the problem with gun violence in this country, besides things like we're not handling mental health issues very well, et cetera, and not having medications and treatment available, I also think it's because people at the top lack contact with normal, regular, everyday people. Just like those soldiers. It wasn't the soldiers in the trenches who had the problem. It wasn't them who wanted to fight. It was the people who were a hundred or a thousand miles away who were, who were uh, you know, making the orders, who had no contact with the people they were fighting. There's a story. This is a true story. Dachau, one of the, the concentration camps from World War II, uh, is completely saturated in sadness and remorse and resolve. There is nothing in that uh, concentration camp today that honors any soldier. There is no glory in the German Germany of World War II. There's no alternative storylines. And there are some statues there that glorify those who were tortured and killed by the Nazis. One of the most famous statues at Dachau portrays skeletons strewn, strewn across barbed wire because so many of the prisoners ended their lives by throwing themselves into the fences and being shot rather than suffer one more day at the hands of the SS. But there's another statue I read about that's called the Unknown Prisoner. And this man stands tall and proud. And the statue shows him standing tall and proud because prisoners were required to keep their heads bowed and their eyes averted. He also has his hands in his pockets because prisoners were forbidden to do that. He's not wearing a hat because prisoners were required to wear a hat on the penalty of death. And his inscription on this statue reads, to honor the dead and to remind the living. The unknown prisoner statue reeks of defiance and courage. And I wonder sometimes today, where is the courage in our leaders? Where is the courage for people to, to think about children and to do things like standing up against special interests and the NRA and groups like that who are, keeping, who are part of the responsibility for keeping this going? It's also interesting, I read this in Nicholas Kristof's article. There's a lack of research on gun violence, largely because the NRA is really hostile to such research and Congress just kind of rolls over. When the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did try to research gun violence, Congress responded by cutting the funding. There's some interesting data from Kristof in his article about uh, the American toll from four diseases and firearms over the years 1973 to 2012. And the number of uh, NIH grants for research to explore each problem over that time. And it's interesting. From 1973 to 2012, there were 266, 266 cases of polio. And there was 129 NIH research grants on polio. Cholera cases, 400 in those years. And 212 NIH grants to study that. There are over 4 million firearm injuries in that time period, from, from 1973 to 2012. And guess how many NIH grants there are to research that? Three. Three grants to study gun violence. Again, problems with courage at the top.
it's interesting. There are best strategies for curbing violence in school, uh, schools and school shootings has been to put the responsibility on teachers and kids, even little kids. Having intruder drills, teaching kids to, to hide and how to lock the classroom doors and all that stuff. So we've put it on them to protect themselves. That's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? Just like it's amazing that in a typical year, more preschoolers are shot dead in America than police officers. We don't talk about that much, do we? And we're not doing it much about it either. And I know that because it keeps happening. It just happened this week. Let me finish up this podcast with some inspiring stories. One of them has to do with how we spread our light. The writer Edith Wharton has said that there are two ways of spreading the light, to be the candle or the mirror that reflects it. Sometimes we're the candle. We shed light of love. We shed light of hope. We shine encouragement into dark souls because it's kind of a cold world for too many people uh, uh, in this world. These are the words of Edith Wharton. It's kind of a frightening and lonely place that's in need of light. St. Francis of Assisi got it right. He said, all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. But Edith Wharton also says, sometimes we're the mirror that reflects the light. We reflect back what we see in others to help them see their own light, their own goodness and beauty, their own strength and resilience and resourcefulness. All of us can do that with every child every adult that we meet, but it means we have to have contact in order to either be a candle and be the influence or to be the mirror who who, uh, reflects back to other people who they really are. I read this story a long time ago about a a little girl in Japan who was 13 years of age and uh, in 1955 she died of radiation-induced leukemia. Her name was Sadako Sasaki, and she was one of many people who suffered the after effects of the um, hydrogen bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. In Japan, there's a myth um, that cranes, the bird, the crane, lives for a thousand years, and anyone who folds a thousand paper cranes will have a wish granted to them. So during her illness, Sadako folded paper cranes. And with each crane, she wished that she would recover from her leukemia. She managed to make 644 cranes before she left this life behind. Sadako's classmates folded the remaining 356 cranes so she could be buried with a thousand paper cranes. Friends collected money from from kids all over Japan to erect a monument to her in Hiroshima's Peace Park. And the inscription on her statue reads, This is our cry, this is our prayer, peace on earth. Each year, people from all over the world place paper cranes at the base of this statue to recall the tragedy of war and to celebrate humanity's undying hope for peace. In some places around the world, people fold paper cranes every holiday season to use as decorations as a symbol of their deep desire for lasting peace. These are the stories we need to hear more often. These are the stories we need to tell our children 
to balance out the crap that they're seeing on the news about school shootings, the war in Ukraine, etc. Lastly, I want to read you something. It's called Children Belong to All of Us. And I'll leave you with this story uh, to hopefully help you see children in a different way and what's going on in this world in a different way. Jim Wallace wrote a book called Who Speaks for God? He talks about a very sad and terrifying incident that occurred during the tragic war in Sarajevo not that many years ago. A reporter was covering the violence in the middle of the city when he saw a little girl fatally shot by a sniper. The reporter threw down his pad and pencil and he rushed to the aid of a man who was now holding this little child. He helped the man get uh, into his car and the two of them took the little child and they sped off towards the hospital. Hurry, my friend, the man urged. My child is still alive. A moment or two later, he pleaded, Hurry, my friend, please hurry. My child is still breathing. A little while later, he said, Hurry, my friend, my child is still warm. But when they got to the hospital, the little girl was gone. And the distraught man said, This is a terrible task for me. He said that to the reporter. He said, I must go tell her father that his child is dead. He is going to be heartbroken. The reporter was amazed. He looked at the grieving man. He said, I thought that she was your child. And the man replied, no, she wasn't. But aren't they all our children? Perhaps if we all thought of all children as our children, perhaps we would do more to curb the gun violence in this country and to make sure our children were safe. Thanks for stopping by. Um, I appreciate that very much. Uh, if you like this podcast today, pass it on. I will be back here with you in a week.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 